The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. This week on the Bain Free Radio Hour, contemporary urban fantasy crime drama, plus part nine of our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Glad you could join us. This is contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, sitting in for Bain editor Tony Daniel. In this podcast, we feature an interview with David B. Coe about his newest Bain hardcover, His Father's Eyes. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, as read by Tristan Morris. But first... This podcast is being scheduled for release on the 7th of August, 2015. Listeners who have heard me host the podcast know that I like to reference This Week in History, and I think I've found a few interesting items. And they're all from the Internet, so you know they're true. First up, for those who like a little science in their science fiction... This week in 1932, physicist Carl D. Anderson discovered the positron, that is, the antimatter counterpart to the electron. Based on that discovery, in 1936, he won the Nobel Prize in Physics. Antimatter, of course, continues to be a staple of much science fictional technology. We have a number of science fiction and fantasy authors who were born during this week in history. For example, this week in 1904, Clifford D. Simak was born in Millville, Wisconsin. His first publication was The World of the Red Sun, which Hugo Gernsback accepted for the December 1931 issue of Wonder Stories. Simak won three Hugo Awards, one Nebula Award, and several other awards, and in 1977, was the third person named a Grand Master by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. The Horror Writers Association also honored him as one of the inaugural winners of the Bram Stoker Award for Lifetime Achievement. This week in 1933, Jerry Purnell was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. He served in the U.S. Army during the Korean War, then studied at the University of Washington, where he earned a B.S. and an M.S. in psychology, and then a Ph.D. in political science. He won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 1973, then served as president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America in 1973 and 74, which seems like quite a feat. He's also won the Prometheus Award, the Heinlein Society Award with Larry Niven, and other awards. 
Late last year, he suffered a stroke, but has been recovering and is back to writing. And Bane fans will be interested to know that in September, we will be releasing an omnibus edition of three of his Janissaries novels in trade paperback format. In fact, you can find Lord of Janissaries on the Bane website right now. The very next year, in 1934, Piers Anthony was born this week in history in Oxford, England. Born Piers Anthony Dillingham Jacob, his family moved to the United States when he was very young. He became a U.S. citizen while serving in the Army from 1957 to 59. He is best known for his long-running series of Xanth fantasy novels, though he had one novel with Bain back in 1994, Through the Ice, written with Robert Cornwise. Much more recently, this week in 1972, another award-winning author was born in Colorado, and I will make every effort to pronounce his name correctly, Paolo Bacigalupi. His debut novel, The Wind-Up Girl, won the Hugo, Nebula, Compton Crook, and John W. Campbell Memorial Awards in 2010. He has also won or been nominated for a host of other awards. Our final This Week in History item is another science tidbit. This week in 2007, NASA launched the Phoenix spacecraft, which landed on Mars in May 2008. And because I have a habit of fixating on weird coincidences between historical items and our Bain Free Radio Hour podcasts, I should point out that the novel series we'll be discussing in this week's interview takes place in, you guessed it, Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, I know, that's a stretch, but they can't all be winners. But before we get to the interview we'd like to let you know about our August 2015 hardcover releases. First, from David Weber, The Sword of the South, a new novel in the Basel universe. In this novel, a swordsman who has been robbed of his past, who knows only that he bears a lot of scars and a lot of exhilarating and sometimes terrifying skills, must confront an evil wizard to save an entire world from evil sorcerers, demons, devils, and dark gods. That's The Sword of the South by David Weber. Also new in hardcover this month, His Father's Eyes by David B. Coe, book two in the case files of Justice Fearson, a hard-boiled, magic-using private detective battling dark sorcerers who have descended on Phoenix, Arizona and are wreaking havoc in the blistering desert heat. Before the next full moon, Fearson must figure out what connects a billionaire financier and a vicious drug kingpin to an attempted terrorist attack, a spate of ritual killings, and the murder of a powerful and ancient magical mentor, all while protecting the woman he loves and his own father. I think there may be an interview about that novel in just a few seconds, right here on the Bain Free Radio Hour. But we encourage you to look for these titles at booksellers everywhere. We're very pleased to have David B. Coe with us on the Bain Free Radio Hour today. David is the author of 18 novels, including the award-winning Lon Tobin Chronicles. That series won the William L. Crawford Award for Best First Fantasy Series from the International Conference on the Fantastic. David earned his bachelor's degree from Brown University and his master's and Ph.D. in history from Stanford. He's been writing full-time for a little over 20 years, and in addition to his contemporary urban fantasy series with Bain, He also writes a historical urban fantasy series known as The Thief-Taker Chronicles under the pseudonym D.B. Jackson. His series with Bain is named The Case Files of Justice Fearson, and we interviewed David a few months ago when the first installment, Spellblind, was released. Today we're going to be talking about the second novel in the series, His Father's Eyes, David, thanks for joining us on another podcast. Gray, 
it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Last time we had you on the podcast, we introduced listeners to the magical environment in these novels, and in particular the fact that the main character, Justice J. Fearson, is a were-mist. Now, listeners who missed that podcast, even though it is available in the archives and we encourage people to go find it, but those listeners who are familiar with werewolves and other were-creatures may automatically guess that Jay's magic has something to do with the moon. For their benefit, David, would you briefly describe what it means for Jay to be a were-mist? Yeah, certainly. Uh, they would be right in assuming that it has something to do with the moon. Jay Fearson is a, he's a sorcerer all the time. He can cast spells, uh, and we'll talk about his magic in a little bit, but, but he can cast spells and do all sorts of magical stuff. But every month on the full moon and the nights directly before and after the full moon, so three nights out of each month, he basically goes temporarily insane. Um, his His mind breaks down and he can't control his thoughts. He's subject to delusions and hallucinations and paranoia. And at the same time, his magic grows even stronger than usual. So at that moment when he is most, when he most needs to control the power he wields, he's least capable of doing so. And the corollary to this is that over time, these temporary bouts of insanity will drive him permanently insane, as they have his father, who is also a wearmist and who is a character in the series. Uh, and so every time Jay interacts with his father, whose sanity kind of winks in and out periodically, he sees his own future, and it's, it's, it's not a particularly uh, bright future. Uh, things, things get pretty bad for, for wearmists when they grow older. Excellent, excellent. Now, you mentioned the magic that he wields, and I think that folks might be interested in a little more details about that. It's kind of an, an additive magic, often dealing with prime numbers like 3 and 7 and 11. And it's not the run-of-the-mill fantasy magic of magic wands and, and magic items and magic words. So uh, could you delve into that a little bit and tell us how you came up with it? Yeah, sure. I, I wanted to develop a magic system that acknowledged that, in a way, everybody who wields the magic, and, and you have to be born with, with a certain, from a certain family or a certain set of families. Not everybody has access to magic. But I wanted there to be sort of an individual quality to each person's magic. And so... Magic is, at its best and at its most effective, an act of will, an act of simply deciding what you want to have happen and, and applying your power to make it happen. But each person who wields magic needs certain mnemonic devices to remember the spell and to make the spell do what they want it to do. And so for Jay, he works with elements of a spell. Uh, so if I wanted to trip someone who's running away from me, as Jay does in the first book, I would visualize my hand, the runner's foot, and him sprawling on the pavement. And that set of elements I'd repeat in my head until I felt the magic building, and then I'd release it, and the spell would take effect. And as you say, certain numbers have power. Three has power, seven has power, 11 does, but he's never been able to, to keep straight 11 elements in his head. So he usually either casts in elements of three or seven. But again, this is Jay's device. This is how he does it. And as I point out in the books, some people might turn their, their magical incantations into a little song that they sing to themselves. Or some who have developed to the point where they can do so without thinking might just be able to visualize and cast all in one moment. And that's, that's, the, that's the goal that he's building toward as he trains to be a, a more effective rune crafter. He's trying to get to the point where his thoughts are immediate and his spells are as quick as, as he can visualize what he wants them to do. I don't know if I made that clear enough. No, you did. And one of the things that I liked about this book is that we see some of his development and his skill growing, not only in that he practices it, but in some ways when 
He is in extremis, shall we say, and he has to do it to, to protect himself, uh, and he finds that he is able to do more than he thought he could before. Right. I really wanted to show, and, and this continues in the third book, which will be out next May. Uh, the third book in the series is called Shadow's Blade, and his development as a runecrafter is one of the arcs that link these books, which are essentially, they're each, they're each standalone books, but there's, there's a continuing development of his character and also of his, his magic wielding. And one of the things I wanted to show was that the time that my readers spend watching him train with his, uh, his ghostly uh, mentor, they're paying off. There's, there's a dividend being paid to both Jay and to my readers for the time we spend watching him go through the training. And I thought that was really important because those training sessions play a fairly important role in all of the books. Uh, and so I thought there should be some benefit to that that my readers and my character experience. I agree. I think that's great. And I think that gives everyone, even folks who might have missed that first podcast, and shame on you if you did, uh, a good bit of background into what they can expect through the rest of this interview and in the book itself. So, as the series name implies, The Case Files of Justice Fearson, uh, in this novel we again join Jay our magic-using private investigator, as he gets called in to help the Phoenix Police Department with a murder case that's also associated with some terrorist activities, and that as he gets into it, turns out to be more than meets the eye. He finds himself eventually playing a role in an early battle of a magical war, but without my giving too much away, I'll let you give as much away as you want to. Uh, would you tell our listeners a little more about the story? Yeah, sure. I, I wanted to accomplish a lot with this novel. I, I love Spellblind. I think it came out really well. It's, it's a nice introduction to the world and to the character. This is a far more complex book, and I think it's better for being so complex. There's a lot going on here, and the, the conflict in the book is happening at many levels. Um, so yes, uh, as you indicate, the book starts essentially with an act of terrorism gone bad, uh, where someone was trying to blow up a plane and ends up being killed by magic under mysterious circumstances. And, and Jay is called in by his partner, his former partner on the police force, Kona Shaw. Jay had to leave the police force because those phasings, after a while, they were taking too much of a toll and he couldn't maintain his, uh, his position uh, as, a, as a homicide detective. So he's called in to investigate this murder of a potential terrorist and doesn't understand why someone would have gone to such lengths to kill this person in order to prevent the terrorist attack. There were other ways to do that. And so it starts out with this strange killing that he can't explain. And then, it, as it goes on, we find out that there have been ritual killings involving magic in the city. Jay himself and the woman he loves are attacked in broad daylight out in public with the equivalent of a magical bomb. And most important, and this is the title, the, the title of the book is His Father's Eyes, Jay's father is under attack for some reason. And Jay can't figure out if this is because of something internal, it's, he's suffering from delusions, or if he's really being attacked by some magical force. And so we have this mystery that starts with something incredibly national in its scope, and it keeps on getting narrower and narrower and narrower until it's down right to Jay and his loved ones. And so the, the conflict is happening on several levels, and Jay has to face things from his past, his uh, mother's death and, and her betrayal of his father, uh, which have been haunting him ever since he was 15 years old. And so there's a lot of personal stuff. There's a lot of political stuff. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of magical uh, ins and outs and, and ways in which the magical community itself seems to be tearing itself apart. Uh, and it was really fun juggling all these story elements and finding ways to link one to the other so that rather than feeling, having my readers feel that they're following four separate threads, 
they've got threads that are braiding through one another and, and are clearly very closely related. We just don't know how until the thing comes to a head late in the book. And I will say that you did a great job of doing that weaving together uh, in a couple of ways. One, you mentioned there that you know it begins national in scope and then sort of narrows down and narrows down and narrows down. But at the same time, the, the threat posed by the, the dark magicians extends far beyond Jay and far beyond the, the city of Phoenix. And so there, there's, there's a lot of, of jeopardy posed to all of us who are not naturally magic users. Yes. And, and the other thing I thought... And I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go, no I, I will never interrupt you, sir. Go right ahead. I did that intentionally as well. Um, you know, you, you want to raise the stakes for your point of view character, obviously, because your point of view character is the, is the reader's access to everything that's happening in the book. And so if you put that character in jeopardy, you essentially put the reader's friend in jeopardy, and the reader cares about that. But as you say, I tried to take it a step farther than that and make it clear that this is potentially a world-shaking fight Jay is involved with. It's something that can redound all through society, uh, all through the world, as Jay knows it, but by extension, because it is set in our real world with just a magical element added, it, it feels like our world itself is at risk. And what I'm hoping for is that my readers, by the time they're 100 pages into the book, are totally grabbed not only by the danger to Jay, but the danger to everything that they hold dear in, in the world in which we live. Well, one of the things that I tell people who want to submit manuscripts to us is that we, we very much like stories that have interesting characters who are struggling to overcome very difficult obstacles in pursuit of very important, highly significant goals. And I think his father's eyes ticks every one of those blocks and does it very, very well because Jay is an interesting character in his magic use and in what it does to him on a frequent basis as he's reminded, as you said, by interactions with his father. And then he's struggling against these very, very powerful magic forces uh, in pursuit of keeping the world safe from terror and evil. And I think that's, that's great that you were able to bring all of that together. Um, and, and my question that goes along with that kind of gets to sort of a, the question of crafting a story like this. Did you continually bear in mind the, the balancing of these elements, or do you focus on one like, the goal, like the, the ultimate problem, or just or the character, and then you fit the other things in later. Is, is there a... Maybe that's a chicken and egg question. I'm not sure. Well, uh, to a certain extent, it is. I think that when, when a novel is going well for me, there's a, there's a synergistic quality to the way the various plotting elements, in fact, all the elements, but we're talking plotting right now, but there's a synergistic quality to the way these things work together. I will say that I started, as the book starts, actually, I mean, the first chapter of the book, which I think is, is it, was, it was very difficult to write, but also I think it ended up being uh, one of the best little pieces of prose I've ever written. It's written from the father's point of view, and it's him going through this, this attack that he's under from these, these dark sorcerers, although the reader doesn't know that yet. They can't tell if he's delusional or, or what. But the story began, the genesis of the story was the personal history, Jay's personal history and his father's personal history, and how I was going to resolve the fact that, that his father was betrayed by his mother, his mother wound up dead and was found next to her lover, and his father has always been suspected by at least some in the police force of having committed the murder, though they could never prove it. And so I wanted to resolve that personal history question by the end of the novel. But of course, if it's just a personal history question, there isn't much, the stakes aren't high enough. That's not a big enough story, especially for the second book in a series. 
You want, you want to be ratcheting up the tension and ratcheting up the stakes with each installment in a book, uh, in a series, excuse me. And so with this book, I wanted to do more. And so I had that personal history, and the question I was constantly asking myself was, okay, but what do they want? This person is connected to the dark sorcerers, but what do they want? And what is it they're after? And, and what's their goal in defeating not only Jay, but all of those with whom Jay is alive? And so I suppose you'd say that I started with one, but while I'm writing, I'm asking myself this question, and I'm trying to answer the question as I'm writing that first draft. I don't like to go back and try to insert stuff to make things happen, although at some point you and I are going to talk about the third book down the road in May when the third book's about to come out, and then I'll talk to you about inserting stuff. Um, <laughs> for, the, for this book, I really didn't want to insert. I wanted to get it all down with the first draft, and so I was, as I say, constantly pushing myself to say, okay, you've got the personal grounding here, but what are you building on top of that, and where does this go? And how are you raising the stakes with each scene so that by the time you get to the end of the book, you've got a, a battle that seems like it's, it's a battle between good and evil. And I tried to give it this, you know, it's at sundown and it's in a Western landscape. And it really does feel almost like a Western showdown at the end of the book. And that was really fun to write as well. But I wanted that to be a significant enough event that it warranted being the climax of the book. And so... I start with the one, and I build as I go, but I'm working them through simultaneously as I'm in the writing process. And that's a very complicated answer to, to what was not that complicated a question. <laughs> no, that's great. And that was the other thing that I was going to point out that I really thought you did a great job of was balancing sort of this external conflict that Jay has with the internal conflict. And I, I just really think that it gives the book a depth that, that'll, quite frankly, a lot of urban fantasy stories lack. Well, thank you. I, that's, that's really kind of you to say. I appreciate it. Um, I read a lot of urban fantasy, and I love the genre. I wanted to do something that fit in with the genre and felt like it belonged on the shelves next to the other books. But, you know... I've, like all authors, I have a vision for what I want to do, and I was shooting for something that really operated on a lot of levels, and I, I'm, I'm grateful to you for saying that and, and making me feel like maybe I, I succeeded in some small way. Well, I also thought the first book was really good, and so maybe I, my, my expectations were, were, were colored by that. But, again, I, I really like this one. And one of the things that I like about both of them is that you continue to paint a more and more vivid picture of this magical world that exists alongside ours. Uh, in the first book, you gave us some glimpses of that there were other people with these same powers and problems that Jay has. And in this book, you show us even more. You show us some, uh, some other were creatures, uh, like a were bear and a were coyote uh, that are a little different from the typical you know, Lon Chaney variety of werewolf. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about them? Yeah, and actually, in this case, I went for simplicity to the degree that I could. What I really wanted with the were-creatures, the, the were-coyote, were the were-bear, and the others, was to have people who really did have dual natures in their souls, so that if, if I'm a weir coyote, as one of the characters is, every month during the moon phasing when others, when, when weirmiths like Jay are going through that, that time of insanity, the weir creatures just turn into their animals. They don't become vicious killing monsters. They can't spread the taint of the weir curse to others by biting them or anything like that. They just become their animal, and they function and behave much as their animal would out in the wild. And aside from that, they don't have any magic at all. And I wanted to have these kind of in-between creatures who didn't have the benefit of the magic but still had the stigma of the phasing. A lot of this series deals with mental health issues because while Jay's insanity is temporary, his father's is not, and he sees that future for himself. And that's a, that's, that's a powerful thing. Mental health issues are, are something that, you know, we, as a society, we really haven't learned to deal with yet. 
And with the wear creatures, I kind of put them in a position where they've got a lot of the same issues, but, but as I said, they have none of the benefits. They don't have the magic. All they have is this painful transformation, and then they spend three nights in, in their animal form. And they wind up being crucial to the plotting in this. Uh, they are used by the dark mages as almost servants and, and pawns in their, in their war. And so I wanted there to be kind of a magical victimization going on, almost, almost a, a, a caste system in the magical world that's being used to, to oppress these other creatures. Uh, and I also just like the idea of people having that dual nature, that dual animal nature in them. Uh, and so the weird creatures appear in the third book as well. They play an important role then also. Uh, and, and it was a fun thing to play with and to kind of turn the, the, the myth of the, of the werewolf on its head and just make it into something that, that was fairly ordinary, but also different from what you normally see. Excellent, excellent. There is some, some darkness in this book. We've talked about dark mages and, and, and evil sorcerers and, and necromancers and those kinds of things. But there's also some humor, and I thought it was very, very well done. And one of the things that impressed me was how well the humor just flowed naturally from the situation. It wasn't forced. It didn't feel contrived. And I know that humor can be a hard thing to develop and convey in writing, but I was curious as to whether you set out intentionally to include little funny bits or if they just happened while you were writing or maybe if you, if you went back through and decided, oh, I need a little comic relief here and decided to insert something. How did that come about? You and I have known each other well enough <clears throat> and long enough to know that, that, I mean, I'll laugh at almost anything. I'm a pretty irre irreverent person, and, and I get that from my family. Uh, my, my parents used to go to funerals and crack wise during the funerals. That's just the way our family copes with stuff. And so this, all the humor that you see in the book happened in the moment as I was writing. It wasn't planned, and it certainly wasn't something I went back and added. It was one of those things where I'm writing a dark scene, and as I'm writing the dark scene, the ridiculous occurs to me. And I think, okay, I need to include that and give somebody that line, because humans do that. We're, we're, we're remarkably resilient creatures. We, we, we most of us, at least, tend to find some form of humor, even in the darkest, most harrowing of situations. And so what I tried to do was, when a joke occurred to me that I found amusing, I gave it to one of my characters and let them, let them have the line, hoping that it would feel natural, as you say, but also would, at least for the moment, break enough of the tension that I keep things moving along. I didn't want it to be unremittingly dark, because it's a dark story, as you say, and I didn't want, I didn't want there to be no light at all in it. And so letting the humor flow as it occurred to me seemed the best answer to relieving that darkness a little bit, but not overdoing it and not making it feel contrived. Well, well done, from my perspective at least. Thank you. Still thinking along the lines of sort of what comes naturally in the process of writing, as you say, you know, as these things occurred to you, you put them in, versus maybe what uh, gets better in the rewriting, in the editing process. I, I especially want to compliment you on, as with the first book, some excellent descriptive passages where you paint just these wonderful pictures of the scene in the desert. Your scene setting is spectacular. And in addition, you just have some quite wonderful phrasing of some of the, the, the lines in the book. And I wrote down a couple. You mentioned that you thought the first chapter from the father's point of view was some of the, your best work. And I have to agree, it's very good. There's one part in there where you describe uh, the moon's effect on wear mist, and you mention that the moon is as merciless as time, as unforgiving as memory. And I just, I love that. 
elsewhere, you know, when you're back in, in Jay's point of view and he's relating the story, he refers to the moon as insistent as a needy child, as unrelenting as the tide. I just thought those comparisons were excellent, and I wondered, did you have to work very hard to get those just right, or did those just flow out in the same way maybe that the humor did? Well, boy, how do you answer that? That's a, that's a tough question. And this, and this gets down to, to a question of process. You know, every writer writes differently. I know a lot of people who like to say, you know, they just throw everything on the page and then they clean it up later. I'm not, I'm not that kind of a writer. When I write, just because this is what works for me as a creator, I polish as I go. And so I will write something and then work it and get it to the point where I feel it's, it's almost where I want it for a final draft before I move on to the next sentence. And that slows me down a little bit. I'm not as I know some folks who write for Bain who write, you know, an entire book in four weeks. I can't come close to doing that. You know, it takes me two and a half, three times that long, which is still fairly quick, but I can't write at that kind of pace. But the flip side of that is that my my first drafts tend to be pretty clean and the revision drafts, the ones I turn into Bain, tend to be very clean. And so when you say, you know, how much did you work on it and I worked on it the way I normally work all of my, my phrasing. I'm, I'm looking for the right, the right wording to get a taste of what I'm trying to do emotionally across and do so in a way that feels as smooth and hopefully, you know, dare I say it, as elegant as I can. Those particular phrases, the, the, the ones that you point out, um, as merciless as time, as unforgiving as memory, that first phrase occurs, as I said, in, or as you said, in, in his father's point of view. And it's, he's at that time grappling with memories and, and grappling with his consciousness of his own age and his own mortality. And so turning back those emotions on himself in that way felt very natural to me. And so coming up with as unrelenting as time, as merciless as memory or whatever it is, as merciless as time, as unforgiving as memory. That felt very natural. It fit exactly what I was trying to do at that moment. And the other one, um, as insistent as a needy child, that's an echo back to the father's point of view as well, because Jay is the child. And so I, I wanted that in there. And then there's been a theme throughout the books of heat and aridity and the desert environment being a metaphor for the dark side of magic and water and relief from the heat and, and coolness being a metaphor for those who are trying to do the right things with magic, like Jay and his mentor. And so I wanted to be able to draw on that metaphor as well. So I th I'm thinking about this stuff all the time as I write, and I try to work in these craft questions to the degree that I can as I'm working so that when I look back on it, I feel like I've not only told a good story, but I've done so in a way that feels like it delivers on a, on a prose level as well. I take a lot of pride in my craft. I feel very strongly that writing is an art and storytelling is an art, and I want to do both of them as well as I can. Uh, and it's fun coming up with those images and looking back on what I did and saying, hey, you know, that, that reads pretty well. I'm pretty proud of that. That's one of the great sources of satisfaction I have in my professional life. And so uh, it's something that I've worked hard at, and I guess it, it, it's paying off. The, the more I write and the better I get, the more it pays off. Excellent. Well, speaking of the more you write, where are you on the third book? The third book is turned in. Uh, it's with my editor right now. It's not due, it's not due out until... As I said, I think the first week, either the first week in May or the third week in May, I'm not sure which. And so right now with the release of the second book and other things that Bain has on its plate, there's really no need for us to be looking at it. So the book right now is sitting in a drawer, and that's exactly where I want it. At some point I want to go back. It needs some work. I have some notes from my agent on things she'd like to see me change. I know I'll have notes from, from Tony Daniel on things that he'd like to see me change. And I have some things I want to work on myself. And this distance right now, this process of working on other things and leaving the book alone and letting it just sit, 
that's very important in my writing as well because it's much easier for me to revise effectively if I haven't been looking at the manuscript for a while. So it's sitting there. It'll be certainly ready. I'm sure that Alan Pollock will come up with another gorgeous image for the cover. And I know that Bain will, will do its normal great job of packaging the book and, and getting it ready for release. And at some point I'll return to it probably around the first of the new year. I'll return to it and do some serious revising, and then we'll put it into production. Sounds good. Is it uh, too soon to ask whether there will be volumes in the case files of Justice Fearson after the third book? Uh, yeah, it probably is too early. <laughs> okay, then. We won't go there right now. Yeah, we, we don't know how the first book did, really. Uh, we haven't seen numbers on it yet. I enjoy writing them, and I would, I would be happy to do more. There's a new short story out in the Justice Fearson world. It's called uh, New Moon Wolf, and it's uh, a short story at Bane.com that came out on July 15th. So for people who are waiting for the release of His Father's Eyes or just looking for more Fearson books or Fearson stories to read, there's that. And as I say, I'd love to do more, but I also have some ideas for other things that I plan to be writing, and I have another series ongoing as well. So I have a lot of stuff on my plate right now. Very good, very good. Well, David, I know that uh, fans who want to check out more about your work and about you, and, and in particular maybe where they can find you on the convention circuit, can uh, find that information on your webpage and that's davidbco.com. I'll spell it out for folks. That's D-A-V-I-D-B-C-O-E.com. But before we go, is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners' benefit? Well, if you don't mind me plugging the other series, I might do that. Well, I like the Thief Taker Chronicles, so plug away. <laughs> All right, well, under the name uh, D.B. Jackson, I'm writing... Uh, a historical urban fantasy series, and the fourth book in that series, which is called Dead Man's Reach, uh, has just been released. It came out on July 21st, and for now it's the final book in that series. I don't know whether there's going to be more Thief Taker books or not, but this one, each book in the series is set against the backdrop of a different historical event, and Dead Man's Reach is set against uh, the Boston Massacre. Uh, so it occurs in the winter of 1770, there's magic, there's the shootings, there's Samuel Adams and Paul Revere and other historical characters and all sorts of stuff, and it was a lot of fun to write, and I'm really lucky. I have two releases this summer, Dead Man's Reach and His Father's Eyes, and I think both of them recommend, uh, represent the best work that I've ever done. Uh, and so I'm really I'm proud of both books, and I'm excited about both of them. And as any writer knows, busy is good, so I'm, 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 I must be doing all right because I'm very busy. Excellent. Excellent. Well, good luck to you with both of these. And David, thanks very much for being on the podcast again. It's my pleasure, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. And now here is part nine of the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, as read by Tristan Morris. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days. And after you enjoy Under a Graveyard Sky, you can check out its sequels or choose from more than 100,000 other titles. Under a Graveyard Sky is the first volume of the Black Tide Rising series by John Ringo. When an airborne zombie plague is released, bringing civilization to a grinding halt, the Smith family, Stephen, Stacy, Sophia, and Faith, take to the high seas to avoid the chaos, but even the wide open spaces of the Atlantic Ocean don't provide a safe haven from the anarchy of infected humanity. It is up to the Smiths and a small band of Marines to somehow create a refuge in a world of darkness and terror. With every continent a holocaust and every ship an abattoir, 
They must fight to survive under a graveyard sky. Here is Tristan Morris with Part 9 of the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Progression of a secondary expression is reduced by potassium, Dr. Carza said, looking at the printout. So it helps, Shull asked, looking at the paper over the doctor's shoulder. Unfortunately, only in a test tube, Carza said with a sigh. The levels of potassium that stop expression in a human would be terminal. However, it slows expression at lower levels. That is usable. This organism is much more complex than just a dual expressor, Schull said, looking at the reports from the groups studying the zombie virus all over the world. Different groups had taken different parts of the virus to study, and the total take was being analyzed by CDC. Pasteur and a series of other teams in various countries. It only has 30% rabies RNA in the secondary expressor virus. Has anyone looked at, well, other people who were sort of off the radar map working on this sort of stuff? What do you mean? Dr. Carza asked. Whoever did this stole my process, Schull said, frowning. Has anyone done any digging in the amateur field to see if any of this stuff is from their work? You jumped out as a dual-expressor pioneer, Carza said thoughtfully. Do you have an example? This, Schull said, pulling out a report and pointing to a series of gene sequences. This looks a lot like Jamie Fondor's work. She's working on plant resistances and works with Clavaviridae. I'm pretty sure I've seen her use similar sequences. It would help if I could shoot this over to her. She may know something useful. How do you recognize it? For a change, the FBI agent assigned had been just quietly staying out of the way and not looming menacingly. Carza understood their passion for the case, but their attitude really did not help the way that most biogeeks worked. I... Shull said, looking up nervously. There are... signatures, Carza said. There are usually several ways to work out a genetic puzzle. In this case, I think what he's saying is that this looks like this Miss Fondor's signature. Hey, 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 Tim said, holding up his hands. She's not a suspect. Jamie would never do something like this. But you're saying that is her signature, the agent said. No, Carza said, or most likely not. It's similar. Someone has been looking not only at professional SynBio, but also closely studying amateur SynBio. And that's important, the agent said, frowning. Here's the thing. You guys get bio, I don't, or barely, which is why I'm in this lab. What we get is investigation. What you're saying is that the unsub has been monitoring information in the amateur SynBio stream. That means they're probably members of SynBio boards. You have those, right? Yes, Tim said nervously. And you're saying that there are signatures to this thing, the agent said, getting animated. We love signatures. If we can get an algorithm for the overall virus, then we can build a database to compare posted genes or whatever and look for similar signatures. If somebody has ever posted on one of those boards, we'll find them. The point being that he's copying other people's methods and signatures, Dr. Carza pointed out which means you're going to be terrifying a lot of innocent people, innocent people who don't work well terrified. We'll contact this Miss Fondor, the agent said. Bring her in as a material witness. Nicely, okay? Can you control that, Carza said? Just let us handle it. We can be polite. In the meantime, yes. Shaw, you're familiar with these people's work. Keep looking for signatures. The more suppliers we have, the better we can build a profile. What boards the unsub frequents? Whose methods he's been copying? It would be good if we could build an algorithm for that. Is there anything like that already? So you want me to burn the only friends I have in the world? Tim said angrily. You're all ready to go bust down Jamie's door, and you want me to do that to how many people? I'll send up that these people are probably innocent of any wrongdoing, the agent said. But Tim, keep in mind, 
While you're worrying about hurting your friend's feelings, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Point, Dr. Carza said. Tim, do you have any personal contact information for Jamie Fondor? Dr. Curry, Bateman said dryly, thank you so much for joining us. The meeting was taking place by video conference, at least in Curry's case. The boardroom the rest were meeting in was five floors up and a few suites over from Curry's lab, but since he'd been given it, he hadn't left, and he didn't intend to anytime soon. As you might have heard on the news, the kid who figured out dual expression has been cooperating with the CDC, Curry said. I'll take an agnostic position on whether he has anything to do directly with the virus. He's being helpful. He was just in a video conference with the WHO and others, and not only pointed out some helpful stuff, but a possible, call it an ameliorative. Not a cure, but something that might help. Again, might. Thing is, he's a little too pat, or I'm a little too cynical. Doesn't matter. The first news, well, ahead of the news, as it were, is potassium may inhibit the secondary neurological packet's expression. Sort of. Bottom line is we all might want to start taking potassium supplements, which people can OD on, by the way. Too much potassium will kill you as dead as too little. But as long as the dosage isn't too high, I'd recommend them. That's good news, Bateman said, looking at Tom. I'll get that promulgated through our medical personnel, Tom said composing a note on his iPhone. Then we get to vaccine, Dr. Curry said. Turns out, this is one hell of a virus. I'm not gonna totally bio-geek out, but not only does it express two viruses with one packet, it expresses two viruses so different, they're night and day. Just to give you the short version, influenza is an orthomyxovirus. It has a full RNA packet and is a fairly complicated virus. The neurotropic blood pathogen packet is a rhabdoviridae virus. Rhabdoviridae are so different from orthomyxoviri, there are some pretty good theories that they may come from two entirely different evolutionary processes. They might as well be alien life forms to each other. And somehow, the mad bastard who created this thing got both to express from a single pathogen. It's like a human mother conceiving and giving birth to a hippo. Impossible. Brilliant and very problematic for the vaccine. The CDC, Hong Kong, and Pasteur have all produced detailed directions for their experimental vaccines. You don't want them yet. They are really experimental, like trial and error experimental, with lots of error. They've already mapped out a vaccine for the airborne packet, but producing influenza vaccine is complicated. And it takes time. And I can't do it in this lab even if we had the design. What I can do, if it works out, is the blood pathogen vaccine. Once they work out the bugs. What are the differences? Bateman asked. And what are the risks? Well, the risks right now are high, Curry said, chuckling. They had some of their lab rats catch the bug, which is the error part, but they'll work it out. Then the real problems come. However, I'm going to have to explain how this vaccine is going to be made, in general, because I'm going to need some more equipment. Which is? Bateman asked. I thought you had everything you needed. I have everything you'd have in a regular laboratory, Curry said, nodding. For its size, even a well-equipped one. What I don't have is what you'd use to produce a vaccine. For that, I'm going to have to lecture. Ahem. <clears throat> Vaccination 101. Various ways of inoculating people against smallpox date back to ancient China and India, but the way they did it was pretty damn dangerous and was just as likely to give you the disease. There's lots of bits in the middle, but Edward Jenner figured out a way to use cowpox to vaccinate, and that was what really started modern vaccine methods. It was Louis Pasteur that figured out that there were ways to weaken pathogens, what's called attenuation and then used those weakened pathogens as a vaccine. The first one was a mistake with chicken cholera, but it led to all his other successful vaccines. 
The way he did it exactly isn't important because it's been superseded by other methods. Modern vaccines are produced in a number of ways. Very few of them use attenuation anymore, but it's still the fastest way to make vaccine. And they're pretty sure that this pathogen can be prevented with an attenuation vaccine. Why did they stop using it? Bateman asked. Problems, Dr. Curry said, waggling his hand from side to side. Issues, lawsuits, immunology 101. Your immune system's a lot more complex than it's explained in high school, but the basics work for this. Antibodies identify pathogens and bind to them. That signals other immunobodies to attack and destroy them. However, the antibodies are originally produced because immune cells have detected that there are pathogens in the body. So you've got to be infected first. And if you've got a good immune system and all's well, you shake it off after a bit. If you don't have a good immune system or the pathogen's real and nasty, well, you die. So, an attenuated vaccine is damaged bits of a pathogen, just enough to tell the body, hey, you've got an infection, and it looks like this, without actually infecting you. The issues are twofold. More, the first is that if the vaccine isn't strong enough, your body doesn't get a good enough look at the pathogen, and when you do get hit with it, you're not really prepared. And then you die. Or the vaccine is too strong, has too much of the pathogen left, and you get the disease, and you die. Or you're allergic to the materials in vaccine, and you die. Or get really sick. Or there's a scare story on TV. Or people blame their child's autism on vaccines, or whatever. And in all those cases, lawyers get involved and there's a big lawsuit. Which of those do we have to worry about? Bateman asked. I don't know, Curry said, shrugging. Is Dr. DePine getting the vaccine? There's a guy with so many risk factors, medical and psychological. The answer is all of them. Thanks so much, DePine said. If the recipe is right and I'm making the vaccine there's still a small risk that someone may get the disease instead of be protected from it, half a percent. And to do it, I need a radiation generator. That's the big difference between Pasteur vaccines and modern attenuated. You can be much more precise in your attenuation, not to mention take less time, with a radiation. Well, no wonder nobody trusts it, DePine said. You're not going to inject radioactive vaccine in me. As I said... Dr. Curry continued, shaking his head. Psychological risk factor, which, in and of itself, can cause hypochondriac reactions. The vaccine isn't radioactive, you dope. You shoot it with radiation, which goes right through. It kills the RNA of the virus. There's no residual radiation. What I'll be using, to give you an example, is a dentist's x-ray machine. Ever had your teeth x-rayed? One of the newer cesium source models is more or less vital, which you'd better get your hands on fast, or they'll be all snatched up by the time you go shopping. And this will work as a vaccine? Bateman asked. Against the neurological packet, Curry said, nodding. It should. The other problem is that it's going to take nearly two weeks to be close to sure. Not this is FDA approved and has been through all testing, Sure, as in, this probably won't kill you and probably will stop the disease. That's the real problem. To get either one distributed will require all sorts of approvals. And then there's other problems. But once it's through the most basic checks, I'll start producing. And I'll be the first one to take it, for what that's worth to Dr. DePine. Oh, and it's going to take a primer shot and a booster. And you won't really be covered until you've had the booster. And you can't have the booster until a week after you've had the primer. So, we're fighting the clock, the spread of the disease, and the development and production of the vaccine. It's going to be close. For us. For the world. I don't give us a shot in hell. Is there anything else critical? Bateman asked. Not that you can't get on the TV, Curry said. But you need to get that x-ray machine. And it will require some installation. Radiation shielding, among other things. But that's details I can go over with Mr. Smith. 
Until the vaccine is somewhat cleared, we're in a holding pattern. Very well, Bateman said, nodding. Thank you, again, for your assistance in this, Dr. Curry. Just make sure the check clears, Curry said, chuckling. Break this down, Bateman said. That was part nine of the complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo, read by Tristan Morris. That's it for this installment of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to David B. Coe author of His Father's Eyes, available now in hardcover from Bain Books. I'm Gray Reinhardt, contributing editor for Bain Books, and it's been my pleasure to be your host for this episode of the podcast. Please join us next time for the Bain Free Radio Hour, where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strong.